Today we're talking about families. If you have a Bible, turn to Colossians 3. And I'm just calling this simply prerequisites to a great family. Here's what it says in Colossians. Chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, always obey your parents for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. So there's really four things that are mentioned uh, in this passage that I want to talk about today. And here they are. I'll just summarize before I get going. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Parents, don't exasperate your children. And children, obey your parents. There's a common denominator here. And it's this. Everybody has to give up something. And that something is the thought of me first. Really, it's a Christian principle. That we're not supposed to think of our own welfare as much as the welfare of those around us. That's the heart of a believer. When everybody's focused on blessing the other, life is way better. And that's what this says today. Now, I just want to stop before I really get rolling here and say this. There are no perfect families. Our family is not perfect. And here's the main reason why. I am in it. That's the main reason. And it's the main reason that your family isn't perfect because none of us are perfect. So here's the deal. It's not about making you feel guilty today. It's about looking at the word of God and saying, can I really receive that and will I really go after it with the truth that is presented to me today? And, and if we'll try to follow this loving God, what he'll do is make our families better and better every day. We have to deny self, believe in him, and follow, and he makes it better. Philippians 2.3 says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And this whole passage focuses on that in the family. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We don't want to just have another sweet little service or fun little worship time, God. We've experienced your presence, but now you, you just want to go deeper with us and, and speak from your word. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us in such a way that we'd be changed for the better, that we might be blessed in a blessing. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. This next point is not one I like to preach about, just so you know. It's no fun at all for me as a pastor, but here we go. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Now this is written by the Apostle Paul, this passage, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Paul, interestingly, has been criticized as being down on women. The truth is, he presented a radical new view of marriage and family which elevated women and children to an unthinkable level of equality. And let me explain why. This is written in a Roman culture a couple thousand years ago. Let me tell you about the people who are getting saved in the city of Colossae and Ephesians. The two cities we're going to look at will parallel that passage today that speaks of the same things Colossians does. That Roman culture, men were dominant in the home. I mean majorly. Nothing like you would even imagine is acceptable. Here's what would happen. They had total authority to the point of putting their wife or their children to death if they were displeased with them. They did not see the wife at all as a person that they would love. Rather, there was only two things that women were for if you had a wife in those days in that culture. To clean the house and take care of the household and to procreate and provide children, not even sexual pleasure. Sexual pleasure was only reserved for time with prostitutes for the men, which was acceptable in that culture. So they didn't even get this companionship feeling, wasn't even part of the culture. This is a radical new thing that he's saying. He's not putting women down. He's bringing Jesus into the equation and saying, that's how you used to live, but no more. And here was the new standard. The new standard will be to serve and to love those in your house, your wife and your children. 
So just keep that in mind that this is not a guy that was uh, making women subject. He was elevating them to a level that they'd never been elevated to and it probably was quite shocking in that culture. But these guys are getting saved and they have to know the way of God now is a different way. It's a way of love. Let's look at Ephesians 5 though, the parallel passage. We'll kind of bounce around between these two passages today in Ephesians and Colossians. But here's what it says and it's interesting if you look at the English um, versions of the Bible, you'll see a period at the end of verse 21 where it says, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But in the Greek, it is not a period, it's a comma. Which means that these next verses that have to do uh, with family, that this comes into play in family as well. And so as we look at wives submit to your husbands, please understand that the Bible also says submit to one another. Husbands and wives, you are believers that should be accountable to one another, love one another, be able to question one another and try to find out what's best. That's all part of the word too. It's a mutual submission. However, you can't really skip the hard part of what this says because in Ephesians 5, it's still very obvious that the word of God has spoken and said that husbands should be the leaders of their homes. Here's what it says. Right after it says submit to one another, and that's very appropriate, it says this, for wives this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Submission or subjection in leadership to the husband. Let's talk about that for a moment. I want to talk about Karen a little bit this morning, my wife. I have a problem with her. And the problem is, she is superior to me in every way. And how do you lead that? Right? I'm, I'm, being, I'm not being facetious. I'm totally honest. She's more intelligent than I am. She's highly organized. I am not. She can beat me at Bible trivia and I'm the pastor. It's embarrassing. She's more spiritual than I am. She is highly disciplined, more so than I am. How do you lead that? I'm supposed to lead her, and honestly, I feel she's superior to me in, in every way. You know when people will say about a person, they start hearing things about them, and they'll say, well, she's not all that. I can't say that about Karen, because she is all that. I mean, she, she's really, really a brilliant person. She worked for a doctor and a vice president of college. She was smarter than them, too, in my opinion. Uh, she's, she's pretty special. And yet, I'm supposed to lead her, and it's obvious in the scriptures, well, how do I get such a woman to follow me? The answer is this. I can't make that happen. And here's why. Submission is a gift. The submission of a wife is a gift to the husband. As a matter of fact, the word means to be yielded up freely. So, if there's leadership in a home where a man is trying to be forceful to get a woman to do that, or even a woman saying, uh, well, uh, I don't want to do this, but I will, that's, that's not offering up freely to allow someone to lead. It's a gift. It's given from the heart by a wife who will place herself under her husband's leadership. It happens of one's own free will. You can't make that happen. Even though Karen has great gifts and abilities, she's given me this gift. Here's the results of her giving me this gift. She's made me a much better leader. Better than I ever would have been had she not done this. Karen believes in me even though I have flaws. And the irony is that I'm better because of that as well, that she will overlook my flaws and still follow me. Her belief in me makes me want to step up and grow and be better for her. Ladies, are you aware that leaders cannot lead well unless someone allows them to? 
I would not have been as good a spiritual leader today if she had not allowed me to lead. You say, well, you're not that great. Well, think how bad I would have been. (laughs) I wouldn't have been as good a dad or as good of a husband had she not given me permission to lead and to grow. And there is the irony of it all. I get to lead because Karen said I can. (laughs) That just doesn't even sound right, does it? But it's true. She's given me the grace to fail. She's offered courage to me when I was afraid. She's respected me and stood by me. Thank you, Karen. Ladies, did it ever dawn on you that you could be the key to him becoming the leader that God wants him to be? If you don't allow him to lead, if you don't encourage him when he fails, he may just get so discouraged that he quits trying because after all, he's just going to disappoint you anyway. One of our problems for spouses, men and women, is it really goes awry when we try to fix each other. Instead of build one another up, we try to fix each other. And the problem with trying to fix your spouse is they will eventually start to believe you don't like the way they are. Now, I know they could make excuses for their failures, but... You know, I think the day they have my funeral, probably one statement will come out that I've said over and over again, probably 150 times. Put a crown a few inches above people's heads and watch them grow into it. Ladies, if you think of a a little boy that's three years old, your son, if you don't have one, just think if you did, would Wouldn't you understand that the way you speak to him, the way you affirm him, is important to a healthy self-esteem for him? It's important for him to realize that he can be something someday for God. The irony of it is, men are God's children. And I just want you to know, ladies, and it's true for men too, that If you will look at your husband, I'm not saying we're three-year-olds, but we're not far from it, really, right, emotionally sometimes. If you will take that same heart to help him believe in himself, to encourage him and to build him up, you're going to get quite a man. And you're going to bring him forward to be all that God's called him to be. Here's a little example of how fixing won't really work out for us. It's, it's not really the best way. Take a look at this video. A very close call. Could have gone either way. It was right on the line. Now, Ferguson's not too happy with it, I can tell you that much. Oh, he's beating him like a rented mule. <laughs> and the ref's just tuning him out. Boy, where do you train to take a beating like that? I wouldn't recommend that methodology to bring him forward. The word says in Proverbs 21.9, it's better to live alone in the corner of an attic than with a quarrelsome wife, quarrelsome wife in a lovely home. You, um, you know John and Pam Priest, and uh, I think there's a great example of what I'm trying to speak of here today in their lives. I would say that John Priest, who was a pastor here for 15 years and Uh, has been here 25 years or so, another 10 years as an elder when he wasn't a pastor. He was before an elder. He's an elder again after he retired as our pastor. But I'm just gonna go out of line. This is my opinion and everybody has their own. But I know a little bit about this history because I was here with all the pastors at some point or another. I know them all personally and from every generation uh, a little over 30 years ago. And I would venture to say that John Priest is in the top five influencers for the impact of this church in our whole history. His impact 
the love he's given, the sacrifice he's shown, and the example he's shown is, to me, he's in the, and maybe you shouldn't do this, but it helps my illustration, so go with me, all right? But, but he's, he's quite a man, and he's been quite a leader. John Priest got saved in this church years ago. Came in and was around 40 when that happened, and his wife, Pam Priest, was a very godly woman when this happened. She'd been praying for him for over a decade. And miraculously, he came in, he gave his heart to Christ. Pam is a great leader in her own right. She was the principal of our Christian school for nearly 20 years or so. And she led many men. And by the way, to be subject to your husband is not, the Bible doesn't say to be subject to men, subject to your man. So you tell those other guys to back off, all right? Um, and that, that's not what that's about. But Pam, so Pam's, very spiritually mature. She's leading men at work and, and, and many women as well, a lot of employees and her husband gets saved and early on the Lord speaks to her within the first year or two around that range and, and says to her, I want you to turn over the spiritual reins to your husband. And she said, well, wait a minute, I've been saved for years. I know you, Jesus. He doesn't, he doesn't even know what he's doing. And the Lord spoke to her and said, I want you to give him the reins. I'll help him, he's ready. So Pam wrote a note, and I've read that note to you before. I'm not gonna read it today. But it basically said, John, I love you. I'm so excited about what the Lord's done in your life. And from this day forward, I'm giving you the reins, spiritually. John, is, he grew faster in the Lord than just about anybody I've ever seen when he first got saved. You know, some of these people get saved in a year or two, they go after it in the word and they're sincere, but they'll pass some of these Christians who've been saved for decades right up because of their sincerity, their passion, and their desire to grow in Jesus Christ. John was one of those people. I mean, he just got after it for Jesus in his own life. Now, I said that to say this. I don't think John has the influence on this community and our church the way he did in the last 25 years if Pam doesn't bring him forward as a leader in her home. Pam's the key to bringing forth the servant leader, John Priest, that we've all felt the touch of the ministry of God through his life. Did it ever dawn on you, ladies, that you might be the key to your husband becoming a great leader? Hey, ask him if he thinks he's a great leader. He'll probably tell you no. But you build him up. You put that crown over his head. You start to believe in him. And just like your three-year-old, you'll see some joy come up in him. This feeling of significance. And guess, guess why I've gotten better and I've wanted to grow so much? Because Karen has loved me so well, I want to step up. I want to be a blessing to her and to my children. I don't want to fail. I want to be better. Interesting thoughts. Second thought today. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. We know right away from this passage and these words that the submission of the wife to the husband never allows for him to mistreat or lord authority over her. That's not the nature of what God is talking about. Maybe, you're, maybe you don't like this leadership thing with, with men when you read it in the Bible, ladies, because you have a wrong concept of leadership. Maybe you have a worldly concept of leadership. But I want you to notice the standard in just a few moments that God speaks of when it's leadership and it's the example of Jesus Christ. That's way different than many leaders in this world lead. But before we get out of whack, let's look at the balance of the scriptures, you know, because this, this submission and the, the authority and the leadership that's allowed to the husband, <clears throat> God sees men and women as equal in his eyes. They're neither male nor female. Let's just look at a few passages. Galatians 3.28. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And he's talking about your value before God. You're equal before God. <clears throat> right? Some of you work in a situation where you have a boss that uh, is, is not, you know, he's not as smart as you either. If we're, you, know, you, you wouldn't say that, but they're not doing so great, but you've willingly subjected yourself in that situation, right? Because you know the importance of, of, 
authority. And, and you know that in that setting that it makes him or her no better than you just because they're a boss, right? You're all people and you all have value. Well, God wants to bring that home in a major way to the family and to the body of Christ to say, look, don't lord authority over anyone. That's not God's way. Not only are you equal before God, but God says in his word that in marriage you're equal partners. Here's what it says in 1 Peter 3, 7. In the same way you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, not speaking physically, but she's your equal partner. That's what God says. She is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Let me just stop there and say for a moment. Any leader that does not take into the account the realm of intelligence, compassion, love, and decision-making ability that his wife has in important decisions, any leader that won't utilize those assets is no leader at all. They're a dictator. Why wouldn't I use this brilliant mind and great heart when we're trying to figure it out as we move forward? I mean, a president, a vice president, that main, wouldn't businesses pull together all their smart people and say, let's talk about this? Well, good grief, decisions, good leaders bring resources together, great minds, great hearts, and husbands and wives should make decisions together. I'll give it to you that the weight is still on the man, but if that man's not using all the resources of the wife, he is not smart. Treat her as you should, it says, so your prayers will not be hindered. Again, I want to bring up that the Bible says that believers should submit to one another. So there's a submission to one another. You, you, you have to be accountable to your, to your wife even though you lead. And then here comes the really hard part. No one else has this put on them. The guys have the hardest task. To love as Christ loved the church. Well, he died for her. For husbands, this is Ephesians 5.25, a parallel passage to the Colossians passage. This means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. To make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. I'm just going to read that part again because that's just pretty deep there and I'm not sure I completely get it, but it's, it's really great. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. So we know how the world leads and that might be a... a, a a stigma that keeps you from, you know, trusting your husband to lead. But let's talk about what God means when he says that, that he wants a husband to lead. Christ is our standard. So I just wrote down a few things that I think Christ has done for us. The, his style of leadership. He served us. That's what he came to do. So men, when you walk through the door at the end of the day, and you've had a hard day at work, and your wife's there, maybe she had a hard day at work too. And you walk in, is your attitude, I want you to serve me now? Or is your attitude, I'm here to serve you? Christ came to serve. He led us by example. He didn't forcefully dictate anything. He asked us questions and listened to us when he was never ever wrong. We're wrong lots of the time. What if we asked some questions? And listened. He comforted. He provided. He protected. He laid down his life. The main purpose of his life was to bless our lives. You see, the key to a great marriage is two people trying to outbless one another. He never forced, demeaned, or devalued us. I'm just guessing that if a man leads like that, serving, giving, loving, a wife won't have much of a problem following. 
couple was celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary and they're asked how they managed to stay married and in love all those years. And the wife said, when I got married, I decided to make a list of five things that he did that I wouldn't get mad at. That love list has kept our marriage together, she said. And then someone asked, well, what was on the list? She said, I never got around to writing it down, but every time he did something wrong to make me mad, I'd just say, he's lucky that's on the list. (laughs) This thought of fixing your wife, you know, we talked about it for a wife, trying to fix it, but It is anti-scriptural to just focus on telling others what they need to do. The, real, the scriptures really have a heart of humility that we would learn what God is saying for us. Christians that are always interpreting for others and never looking at their own lives are just a pain to be around. And brothers... If we're going to lead, we have to build up love and courage and serve. Here's what love looks like. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Does not demand its own way. Think of that. Not even God demands that you do what he wants you to do. And all he wants you to do is follow him so you'll be blessed. Love is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. Ooh, that's a big one for marriage right there. Are you keeping record of the wrongs? Does your argument always come back to the one big thing? If it does, that's a record. And love keeps no record of wrongs. Does not rejoice, rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. I want to talk to dads here for just a moment. I just feel led to do this today. This is something you can debate about. I'm not sure I can completely back it up, but I feel it's true. So you, you, you can talk around the table and say, yeah, I'm not sure he's right on that. Wh- whatever, this one's subject to that kind of scrutiny. I think the greatest sin we can commit in our families is to give up. Men, our society's really hurting because we've given up too much. Maybe you haven't, and God bless you if you haven't, men, and you're hanging in there and you're loving and giving, but men have given up too much in our society. And I think it's a terrible sin. I don't even care what your reason is for giving up. Maybe you were neglected. Maybe your wife didn't treat you right. Maybe your kids didn't appreciate you. Maybe you'd been so bad and you'd become an alcoholic that you destroyed life and you decided, I've seen men decide this, I'm so bad that all I do is mess things up. I am going to disappear because everybody is better off without me. That, is, that, that comes from the devil himself because anytime you walk away and you give up, you've sinned against your family. Hang in there. It doesn't matter why men walk away. Let me tell you the effect because I sit on the other side of the desk in rooms where people hurt and their hearts are wounded and they're in their 50s and 60s and they can't overcome it. When dad left. I guess it could be mom that left too. But when we give up, the opportunity for God to come into this situation is not provided any, any further because we're not going to be around to see it happen. Don't give up. Hang in there. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Has love in the American version of it, the definition meant to you, a place where there's bliss, wonderful feelings, and never any problems? Isn't that the definition of love in your brain? The American definition. But God's definition talks about patience and enduring and keeping no record of wrongs. What? 
I told you last week, I'm, a, I'm on a quest. I'm, I'm really seeking God to understand his love. I, I know I probably should know all about it, but I don't. It's so vast and so amazing. And so I'm, I'm asking him to help me see and understand and know who he is and how he loves because that's the definition of God in the Bible. God is love. And this morning I prayed about God's love as I sat right there in the first service during worship and I said, thinking of his love, I said, Lord, help me see it so I can be it. Because when we really understand what love is, when we really understand how he loves us, we start to love others and we're not as worried about everything else except our loving, our our own arguments start to dissipate because... They, they start to melt as we realize he loves us and we, we can love the same way, even if we're being mistreated. But I'm starting to realize that love is overlooking faults, not the absence of them. I mean, isn't that what it just said in 1 Corinthians 13? It's not the absence of faults, it's the overlooking of faults. You say, well, they might think they're okay. Listen, can we just trust his word? I mean, an atmosphere of love, constructive criticism can flow. But the key is the atmosphere of love, security. I grew up in a family that, um, you know, uh, American Indian on both sides, mom and dad, and, and um, he, he's just loud in our house. Um, even when we played, we broke lamps. I mean, we were just one kind of rough family. And honestly, we had, we had some problems. My dad, my mom, my brothers and sisters, we all argued, we disagreed with one another and got upset with one another on a pretty regular basis. But each time, no matter what, we knew we were gonna stay together. We knew we were gonna forgive one another and move on. We sometimes grew, and honestly, sometimes we didn't grow. But we always chose to believe in and love the other. Today, I realize more than ever that that was love. According to 1 Corinthians 13, working through things, never giving up, hanging in there. That's love. Not a nice, warm, fun, fuzzy feeling that's the result of having no problems. It's fighting through the worst, the hard times. It's staying together. It's being committed to God and each other and having a heart to grow through the difficult times. Third thought today. Children, always obey your parents for this pleases the Lord. Now let me say that the always... Uh, does not mean outside the realm of the truth of Christ because this is a context of Christian families that Paul is writing to, those who are in Christ. So always doesn't mean in abusive situations or when someone's forcing sin on you. That's not part of always. Always is in the context of a Christian life and God's truth, which would be that atmosphere of love. But for children, and since there aren't a lot of children in here today, I'm, I'm uh, you know, you know um, small children, I'm not going to hang out here uh, as much as those first two points I made. But there's a blessing that is spoken of here. This, this always, I might point out as well, children always obey your parents for this pleases the Lord, is intended for minors and not adult children. Okay, you don't, you don't have to obey your parents when you get to an adult situation. Now, it's, it's complicated a little bit in our culture now because we have adult children living with their parents. And then we have parents living with their adult children. I'm not exactly sure, but I'm gonna go out on a limb and say, who's in charge of the home then? I would just say the one whose name is on the title, Okay. It's a really good thought. It's their house. Have a good agreement about what the rules are gonna be and if you can't agree, don't come together, okay? Just don't do it. Parents, you don't have to be there with your kids. Kids, you don't necessarily have to be there with your parents but if you're gonna come together, the one with the title on the house is the one that 
gets to say what's going to happen in their house. And you can work out agreements, but just make sure it's worked out well. And that, that may not sound like a big deal, but that will save a lot of trouble right there, a good understanding. God's word says that there's a blessing for the children that obey their parents and, and it pleases him. Now let's look at the parallel passage in Ephesians. It doesn't work for adult children there, but there's something that Ephesians kind of brings a, another realm into it that, that, that is pretty important and it doesn't use the word um, obey here. It's just, well, it does, but it adds. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord for this is the right thing to do. And then it adds this, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you and you'll have a long life on earth. Now, you're not to obey your parents your whole life long, but you are to honor them. Listen, I know, uh, I know there's lots of reasons why um, you shouldn't have to honor your parents. I don't know what they're like, but some parents have just been horrible to their, uh, to their kids and, uh, and, and have made life harder, not easier, and wounded and hurt. But it's still true that honor, you know, how can you honor a parent who's been bad? Well, hey, are you, are you glad to be alive? And you were birthed into this life and you have a chance to do great things for God as, as a result. And I, I can even understand and see why parents, why, why kids rather, should honor the position, right? Um, there have been presidents that I've not been in agreement with, um, with their policies, procedures, and moral focus. But because of that position that they hold, and I would honor them, I would honor the position even if I didn't respect some of their views. And I, I think in that way, there's a, there's a way that we can all honor our parents in those, those ways that I speak of. But, but for most of us, I mean, we're just, a, we're just a culture of a, we're just a bunch of whiners who blame our parents for everything. It's just dumb. Come on, take responsibility for your life. I mean, parents have done so much for us and we're, we're, we're gonna act like every little problem we have is theirs. Here's why we should honor our parents, because life's going to go better for us. I mean, that's a promise of God. Look again. It's a commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you'll live a long life here on earth. Years ago, I was a um, college student at George Fox. My dad was pastoring, and, and my mom in Escalon, California, and my junior year, I squeezed four years into five. I was one of the brilliant ones. And um, my junior year, which was crossing over from the third to the fourth, somewhere in that realm, uh, I went to be an intern to work at my dad's church. And what that means is that I would get college credit for it, working alongside him, write papers and have some assignments that I did all summer long. And uh, it was kind of cool. It was a small church, but it was cool to work with my dad beside him and um, but my dad and I have had some differences in our lives. And um, we had some differences that summer. And I can't even remember what the collision was about. Um, and and it, it wasn't physical, but it was, you know, just, just difference of opinion. Uh, but I remember we had a problem. And I had a friend who was also my age who lived in the area who's saying, I mean, I'm living in dad's house. I'm 21 or so. And I have a curfew. And then there were other things that he wanted, and I didn't really like that. I mean, what 21-year-old would, right? Especially when the curfew's 10. Um, <clears throat> I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. I'm just, I'm just saying. <laughs> but I remember my friend saying to me, you can't let him treat you like that. Come live with me. I'll let you live here for free. And I go, no, I'm not going to do that, man. We'll work it out. We always do. He said, you can't. I said, listen, he's my dad. I love him. We'll work it out. And we did. We always do. 
Now, I really believe that one of the reasons that God has blessed my life, it's here in the scriptures, I have honored my parents. Honor in the sense of like faithful, not every moment all along the way, like I made some mistakes. But if you look at my life and the way I've treated my parents overall, I have given them honor. Why? Because I love them. They're awesome. Did they make mistakes? Sure they did. Have you as a parent? Yes, you have. But I have a great relationship with my dad. And you know what? I could have messed it up. I could have said, who do you think you are? I'll live my own life. I'll do what I want. And I could have walked away and not honored him. But we worked through it. And because there was a heart to say, okay, Lord, if this is what your word says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try. The moment you humble yourself, things, God just shows up. Cool things start to happen. It's the way it works when you follow God's word. I love my mom and dad. I'm still honoring them. I'm trying to call them every week there in Missouri, tell them I love them every now and then, tell them something great they did for me when I was little and say thanks. Something about it, it's there. Fourth thing now, and I'll close with this fourth point. Fathers, do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. Interesting that that Greek word interpreted fathers, which I think is probably the best interpretation, but can also have a meaning for, it can be translated parent. So you might have wondered, well, why does that say fathers and not mothers? Well, the word could actually mean mom too, parents. So that's, I think it's great to put the emphasis on father because he's, he's the leader who sets the pace and everything else usually follows whatever he, uh, the, the manner that he takes. But it's just an interesting thought that it could mean parents as well. Parallel passage again, Ephesians 6. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. So, don't provoke, don't aggravate, don't discourage. Why do you think the Lord says that to us, parents? Because we could do that quite easily if we're not careful. And we probably have from time to time. But what we're trying to do is get it right and grow and become and move to the best place, right? And it's not only our children who need to grow, is it? It's us as well. John MacArthur is a pastor who has a, a list of 10 ways that we can discourage our children. I kind of want to go over that list quickly here if I can. Um, overprotection is one of them. Too many rules and <clears throat> it'll equal no trust. If a parent has so many rules, they won't let a child learn to make decisions on their own, then that kid's gonna feel like he's not trusted at all. We're raising them to let them go. We're giving them more and more decision powers. They're moving up through their teen years. Not all, not all power, but some, and they're learning to take care of themselves, make their decisions, and we launch them, Right? I like the title of a book, Hold Me While You Let Me Go. Our job is to prepare them to go with love and even some responsibility of their own decision making. Sometimes we overprotect. can even be legalistic. Another thing is showing favoritism that can be a problem. Comparing one unfavorably to another. Making them feel inferior like you don't love them as much as you love another depreciating their worth, communicating to your children that they're not significant. <clears throat> it's done through negative words or sometimes just a lack of attention. We're not around. We don't seem to care because we don't have presence with a C. Unrealistic expectations. Nothing is enough so the children never get full approval. Now dads, let me, let me talk to you for a moment since the emphasis here was father's. I know you mean well, and so do I, but I've made mistakes before. Because our heart is to help and to focus so our children can be the best that they can be. But I'm telling you, if we focus too much on what they need to be doing, they'll feel like we don't like who they are. 
they'll feel like we don't enjoy them as a person. And I, I know your heart, you just want to help them get there, right? You're just telling them how to make it in life and, uh, you know, it's not that easy and you want them to be more successful than you are. Yeah, there's a danger in all that. How about if we move to a place where we just want to bless them by letting them know we care about them and they're special and they're significant to us. And unrealistic expectations, be better, come on, do it, do more, it can hurt our kids. Failing to show affection. This causes discouragement and it can alienate a child. I think of a youth pastor who told me once that he was talking to a junior high who was so hurt um, because his dad had left him. And he never really knew what a dad was. He never grew up with a dad. And the pain of that, you know, sometimes in a, the, the reason the altar's so great and the presence of the Lord is so awesome, you can talk forever and even counsel forever someone about the pain in their life and you'll get about this far, sometimes. But you get in the presence of the Lord and the Spirit of God touches a person's heart and in a moment, God can lift something out that's wounded him for years by the power of his Holy Spirit and his presence. And that had happened to this kid where things were being lifted out at an altar and a youth pastor was praying with him and the tears were flowing as God, it's, it's, it's a Greek word called catharsis or cathartic which means just letting it all go and sometimes we do that with tears in the presence of the Lord. And that was happening and the guy was lamenting his loss. I never knew what it was like to have a dad and he said, I, I never knew what it was to touch my dad's face. How much pain is in that statement? Where a junior high boy says, I never got to touch my dad's face. And then he said to the youth pastor, can I touch your face? He never knew what it was to feel the stubble on the chin of a man. He never got to play as a toddler on the floor with daddy jumping all over dad. And our absence or our lack of affection, our touching, our holding, our loving can hurt our kids and alienate them and make it difficult in society. Not providing for their needs, the privacy that they need, a place to play, clean clothes, a place to study, their own possessions, and good meals. These are just basic things that most families give their children, but sometimes when you're not paying attention and providing in that way, a child tends to think everybody else is getting this attention. I'm not. I must not be worth as much as the other people. Not true, but it can happen. A lack of standards where parents fail to discipline or discipline inconsistently. Children are left to their own, and the Bible says that a child left to their own will be ashamed to their mother. We need to stay involved. We need to set boundaries and standards. We need to have some godly discipline that is motivated completely by love or they get out there and get hurt and we're part of the hurt because we didn't care enough to keep the boundaries up. I just want you to know boundaries are important even when kids cross them because they know where to go back to when they cross them if they've heard about it. If they're left without any boundaries, they wander through life for years. Some of you could say, you know of the pain because boundaries weren't set for you. Thank God that he rescues. Criticism. They grow up with a performance mentality and an insecure feeling that they can never quite measure up in life. It seems that people who are unhappy with themselves will sometimes project that on, on their children. Hurt people hurt people. And that criticism, can I'm just telling you, it can ruin a person for life. It's so difficult to overcome if you've been subjected to it. And then neglect. Parents need to be involved in their children's lives. Most of these, a spirit of love will be evidenced by time. And time can take care of most of these problems making sure you're with them, making sure you know, making sure that they know you care. A dad had realized he hadn't spent much time with his kids recently, so he pulled his two little girls together, four and six years old, 
apologized and said this, you know, it's not always important the quantity of time we spend together. It's really about the quality of time we spend together. <clears throat> well, the little girls, what's quality, what's quantity? So he saw it in their eyes. And so he said, well, quantity means how much time and quality means how good the time is we spend together. Which would you rather have? And the six-year-old said, quality time and a lot of it. <laughs> and that's what I would recommend. The Bible talks about walking with your children and investing in their lives and speaking the word of God and affirming them. And then the last is excessive discipline. Uh, This is a parent who abuses their child verbally or emotionally, physically. Parents should lovingly correct their children and this can bring devastation in their lives. Man, those are scary to think of. Probably not one of us who've done all those things completely perfect. But it's good for all of us to love our children and be careful that we don't become a discouragement to them. The beauty of living the way God asks us to is that life gets better when we start to follow him. I didn't do this in the first service, but I, I, I wanna do it here. Um, you know, how, how do I get such a healthy, cool lady like Karen? I hope I'm not making all of the women despise Karen because I'm talking like she's perfect. How, how do I get a person like that for my life? There were a couple of parents that did really good on those 10 things that I just shared with you. They loved their daughter, their son. They're kids. And they were really balancing all these ways and they're here today. Alan Jane, I just want you to raise your hand. Thanks for caring. God bless you. Let's give them a hand. And <clears throat> I really like her. You did a good job with her. Thank, thank you. I feel like you gave me an awesome gift. Healthy person. That's why we want to be good to our kids, right? So they can just be healthy and enjoy life. and That's what will happen. Listen, uh, none of us are living this completely right. Really. I mean, you may think you are, but you're not. And, and you could do better. If, and that's the thought you need to have. I can do better. And, and so the, the, the idea is let's find out the areas that we need to grow and let's ask the grace of God to forgive us, cover us, and enable us to be better. And... and So we've got problems behind us. But you know, God never deals with what's behind you. He deals with now and what's ahead of you. He deals with what's behind with forgiveness and grace. He deals with what's ahead by the power of his Holy Spirit and enablement. So let's just say, okay, let's let's get into the game here. Let's run the offense, coach. And let's let's find out. That's how we have success. It'll just get better. Not saying it'll be perfect, you'll never reach that, but it'll get better and better all the time. Isaiah 32, 17. And this righteousness will bring peace. Yes, it will bring quietness and confidence forever. My people, now catch this, will live in safety quietly at home. He's talking about following his truth. They will be at rest. His promises are awesome.